Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, Flushing-based political consultant David Forsmark and Tim Sneller, the former Democratic state representative from Burton, discusses who might and might not run to be U.S. Rep. Dan Kildee's successor in the 8th Congressional District. Executive Vice President Don Crandall of the Home Builders Association of Michigan updates MERS on the current state of housing shortages. And State Rep. Phil Skaggs, an East Grand Rapids Democrat, explains how he sure will be disclosing more than what's required from him in Democratic leadership legislation subjecting lawmakers to financial disclosure filing mandates. Now here's MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber and editor Kyle Malin. Thank you so much, Mark Bator, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, where we will be starting things off with our morning roundtable discussion, where pundits and guests get to take their personal deep dives into Michigan's political topics. Now, we are kind of kicking off with a roundtable dedicated to last week's headline with U.S. Rep. Dan Kildee announcing his retirement over in his Genesee County-based congressional district, the 8th Congressional District. So we have Tim Sneller, a former state rep from Burton in Genesee County, and David Forsmark from Flushing, a political consultant. But before we dive into the Kildee congressional political hot takes, I want to ask a Thanksgiving-themed question. What special interest group in Lansing do you think got the short end of the wishbone in 2023? Oh, small business without a question. Why do you say that, Dave? Well, I mean, it depends on how you, I mean, small business um, encompasses some actually fairly large businesses who now come under all of the new regulations and uh, unionization things apply to. All, and, and the governor's um, sole interest is big business and attracting them. See, I was going to go with local government because they got the short end when it came to the siting legislation on the clean energy package. They didn't get the plastic bag repeal through the legislature. And even though local government came and and at the local level spoke up against the Goshen plant and Marshall, both of those projects are looked to be plowing forward, even though GM has put the pause on the uh, Blue Oval plant. It looks like they're still going to try and move forward with it. So my vote would be local government. That's fair say, and even though I think an outsider might perceive this, but I wonder if some of the abortion advocacy groups feel like they got the short end of the wishbone just because they didn't get everything they wanted out of the Reproductive Health Act legislation. I wonder if Planned Parenthood of Michigan really viewed the Medicaid reimbursements as a way to give them a financial boost following the last two years. So there is kind of some disappointment and some grievances that have been caught in the press releases. At least I feel comfortable making that observation. What do you think, Tim? Well, I'm going to agree with you, Kyle, for a change. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I've always, as a legislator, I, I was a big advocate of local control. And I think local governments kind of as you, for the reasons you mentioned, kind of got screwed, um, you know, with uh, uh, the zoning stuff and um, 
uh, things like that. I think they got the short end of the deal. So, cause I've always been an advocate of local control. So, you know, anything I always looked at in legislation would make sure that it starts at the local level, because as we all know, people go to their township or city hall before they drive over to Lansing to see us. I agree with you. You know what? I'm going to change my vote, <laughs> but I would say it's rural local governments um, that have really gotten the short end of the stick. Most of these things don't apply to, uh, you know, nobody's going to build a windmill in downtown Birmingham or dig a gravel pit. Now that I'm thinking, you know who else got got the short end of the wishbone? The gun rights groups. Like with the abortion, you can say that one side got a little bit. The other side didn't get it as bad as they wanted. But gun rights, if you were a gun rights supporter, you got nothing. You got rolled and nobody is on your side. The polling is upside down on you and things are going in the wrong direction. The governor is going to sign another bill today that that allows those who are convicted of domestic violence, even on a misdemeanor, to not be able to have a gun for eight years. Um, they really took it on the chops and nobody feels sorry for them. And that's, you know, as far as the public concerns. I do want to pivot to the theme of the conversation, which is U.S. Rep. Dan Kildee's retirement announcement from the previous week. And I want to take an interesting twist because I know right now a lot of members of the media are calling people up. They called you, Tim, asking if you're running for Congress in 2024. And you said absolutely not, right? That is absolutely correct. (laughs) (laughs) Now, is there my question for both of you, you know, is there a name that's kind of circulating in this? pool of what if candidates that you're kind of like, shut up, absolutely not going to happen. Well, Dave Martin already said, what are you kidding? When somebody called him, I'm not sure who it was. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll cross him off the list then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and me too. So no Sneller, no Martin. Okay. I think uh, people are trying to float Sheldon Neely or Karen Weaver, but they've both got half of Flynn as their enemies. Well, now, Sheldon, though, told me that he was just forming an exploratory committee, though. Well, he can. OK, he can he can do that. I mean, politicians all think they're loved by everybody. But I'm just uh, Flint is completely is almost completely divided between Weaver and she- and Neely camps. The act there's a lot of activists that really, really don't don't dig Sheldon. So, I mean, he can do what he wants. He he would hand the Republicans about a five, five to seven point win if he were the nominee. What do you think, Tim? Is that true? Uh, well, I think Flint, I never represent Flint. I lived there for a little bit. But I think Flint is uh, in the black community is divided. Um, you know, as uh, Mr. Forrest Martin just said, you know, you got uh, ones in the Weaver camp, ones in the um, uh, Neely camp, and then you've got another base. You got another base out there, smaller base probably. But I just believe that the uh, black community, uh, which is a prominent uh, population in Flint now, is uh, probably split three ways. So I think it could be difficult. We all know, I mean, Genesee County is just over half of the population of the entire 8th Congressional District um, sits there. So it's going to be interesting to watch. <clears throat> you know, I one of the first names that came to mind for me was uh, former uh, Senate Democrat leader uh, Jim Ananick. Um, I don't see any movement on his side and possibly not running. So, Well, Tim, what do you think about Vanessa Guerra then? Vanessa Guerra who uh, represents uh, Saginaw right now as the county clerk. Could she be somebody who comes into Flint and maybe unifies the warring factions there in Flint? Uh, Well, I served two terms with uh, Vanessa. I've got the utmost respect for her. I mean, look what she did in Saginaw County. I mean, when she ran for a countywide seat for um, clerk up there, she beat a a long-term incumbent 
by quite a bit. And uh, so I know she has a power base up in Saginaw. Uh, but is that enough to resonate down here in Genesee County? I would suspect a lot of people, and I'll do respect uh, my good friend Vanessa, you know, she probably doesn't have a lot of name recognition down here. Also, Mike Hanley was accumulating enemies and not friends at that point. Uh, he almost, he didn't beat Amy Carl very by very much in that general election, his last general election. So he was kind of done. No, but the point I'm making is she came yeah, out of the no, no, I, ran against him and I mean walloped him. <laughs> when I talked when I talked to Kyle, I brought her name up. David, how would you illustrate the voters, the dynamics of this congressional district? And what does a candidate absolutely need to bring to the table to be successful? This district is probably one where who, the top of the Republican ticket doesn't matter as much because this is one where Trump doesn't hurt the Republican. Even the the more well-to-do parts of, of the district don't hate Trump, except for maybe in you know Midland. So, and I'm still not convinced Trump's a nominee, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that either party's really going to nominate somebody that two-thirds of the people can't stand, but we'll see. The, uh, and it's really two, I think it's in a way it's two campaigns. It's Genesee County is one campaign and the Northern three counties are another campaign. The, uh, although that's less now without Dan, without Dan Kildee. So, it's a, I would call it, I would say it's a straight up 50-50 seat. It's going to be a battleground seat probably forever. Uh, there's no way to improve. Well, there's no way like a redistricting could improve the Democrat base in this county because the Democrat base in this county is right in the middle of, of the biggest county. So it's surrounded by, and it was Dan's problem too, was when they expanded the seat, it was surrounded basically by two to one Republican areas. The only place they could expand to that wasn't was Midland. And that's pretty solidly Republican. So at the moment, I would say that seat, that seat's 50, 50 for the next 10 years, barring any reapportionment, you know, lawsuits and all that stuff that are seem to be going pretty well, but uh, I don't think it'll affect this seat very much. It could get more Republican, but it'd be, I don't see why any of the other, even if they redrew the map, that this one would be affected very much. Would you agree with that, Tim? 50-50 seat? Um, no, I slightly disagree. I think it's still a more leaning Democrat seat. To, and, and like Mr. Forsmart just said, I mean, it's going to depend on who the candidate is. Um, I think in this particular congressional seat, it is going to be local. I don't think the top of the ticket is going to play into it. Um, it's going to take, I, in my opinion, <clears throat> it's going to take some name recognition, which I don't know on either side there is name recognition, especially when you're talking to two folks that are from Genesee County. Like I said, it's more than half of the <laughs> congressional <laughs> district. So I think um, you're going to have to make a lot of headway in Genesee County if you're hoping to either win the Republican primary or the Democratic primary. Um, you know, you may win the Republican primary and up in Midland or, you know, Northern Saginaw or wherever. But um, at the end of the day, in the general election, you're going to have uh, a fairly not solid because it used to be solid. I don't think Genesee County is solid anymore, but I still think the majority of Genesee County is Democrat countywide. And um, I just think that you're going to need name ID and you're going to have to really work Genesee County to, uh, to pull off a, a win. Well, the one, the one way I would disagree just a little, look, Genesee County is, I wouldn't advise anybody to run as a Republican countywide in Genesee County. But uh, Tim's also right that the margins have narrowed somewhat. You know, Clio, uh, that whole area used to be solidly Democrat, and it but it went solidly Kildee. It won't go solidly not Kildee. Fenton, Flushing, Grand Blank, he got 
narrower margins than probably any other any other Democrats going to be able to get. So it's narrowed a lot. I mean, you want to tell, you know, say 49 percent Republican, but it's it's when you get up to, uh, you know, people don't get really realize. But I mean, Trump won Bay County by 7000 votes in Saginaw. Saginaw is pretty much a 50 50 county. It's narrowly Democrat. But, you know, Ken Horn always took it. Roger Kahn took it, although they were also Saginaw candidates. One of my front runners who who doesn't one of my uh, somebody I'm going to propose that's that's a uh, needs to be considered for this race did take Saginaw County not as a Saginaw County resident. Can I take a guess on who that is? Yes, you can. It, would it happen to be somebody who ran for Attorney General with the initials? It TL? would be somebody who happened to run for Attorney General. <laughs> General and he beat Dana Nessel narrowly in Saginaw. He won the he's won the northern three counties by by a pretty decent amount. So we're talking about Tom Leonard, and he has roots in Genesee County, which I didn't realize until you reminded me about that yesterday, Dave. I said Montrose, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, his mom still lives in Montrose. Maybe. He grew up in Montrose. Yep. Worked for the Genesee County prosecutor. Great lady. Yeah, mm. and one, one, one point I'd like to just make, uh, what Mr. Forsmar just said is, I, th I agree with him on the northern tier of Genesee County, the Clio, the... Uh, Thedford, uh, Vienna Township. But if you really look at it, for example, 2016 in the 50th House District, which doesn't exist here in Genesee no more, it's down in Livingston County. But um, Trump won my district in 2016. But I think it was 49.9 to 49.3 for Hillary. <laughs> I won my district with 52%. I was running against the former mayor of Grand Blank, uh, the city of Grand Blank, Mike Matheny, great guy. Uh, but this time Biden won my district. He won Burton Graham Blake. And if you look, really look at, I've been, I've been involved in this since 1983 when I started my legislative career over in Lansing. And I never dreamed I would see the day that the uh, Graham Blake Township Board would be controlled by the Democrats, and which it is now. It's four to three. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have never imagined that because they usually had their one token. or um, Her name was Mickey Hoffman. Uh, she was a retired teacher from Grand Blank, and she was the only Democrat went on to become the supervisor in a, you know, a, a week's supervisor system out there, so, sort of like Scott Bennett is now. Uh, but if you look at it, I mean, uh, Biden won my district by 2,500 votes. I can't help but think about the price tag of this all and oh, what yeah. it's going to look like in 2024. A lot of money is going to get spent in the mid-Michigan Alyssa Slotkin district as Democrats want to keep that seat blue as she runs for the U.S. Senate. Over in John James's Macomb County-based district, some Macomb County Democrats have expressed that they needed more money to get a Democrat elected, especially how tight Carl Merlinga, the Democrat nominee for that 2022 race, did. How much money do you think is going to get spent on that kill these seed and where the heck is this money even going to come from? Who are going to be the hubs that come to the table here? Oh, it's going to be huge. I mean, the NRCC is going to open the gates for this. And I, I still maintain Kildee got a vote that no other Democrat can get here. And, you know, Paul Young didn't have a lot of local, a, a lot of local uh, connection. Um, and he was able to, you know, he used that a lot, whether that was it or, or, it was and it was a really bad, bad year for Republicans. And I still think Paul's a legitimate candidate. And I think he's got to be considered. He's still got money he wants to spend. But um, the national nationals are going to open the floodgates for, for this seat, for really all three of the seats you mentioned. Tim, I want to see who do who are your top three likely candidates to run for this eighth congressional district seat on the Democratic side? 
Uh, well, I, I, I think, first of all, I've heard the name floated um, around. I worked in the Senate briefly earlier this year and got to meet her. I think Kristen um, McDonald-Rivet would be one. Um, she won a seat that I don't think anybody saw coming. Um, I certainly didn't see it. And I think she did well up in those more kind of pink, red areas than I think we anticipated, because I think she truly is like I am or I was um, certainly a moderate. Uh, but anyways, I see her, I, you know, here uh, floating around the former guy I worked for, her, uh, John Cherry, we refer to him as Danny Cherry, so we can keep his dad <laughs> name separate. Um, I see him running. And as uh, Mr. Forsmar just said, you know, Sheldon Neely's thrown his name around. Um, I think he might do well in maybe Flynn or Saginaw, but I think outside of those bases, I think it's going to be very difficult. I heard the name Chris Swanson, Genesee County Sheriff. But do you see him maybe going for governor instead, maybe giving this a taste and deciding, eh, I don't know if I want to do this? Yeah, I think his focus has really been on, and I'm and really good friends with Chris. He's a great sheriff and he's a good person. Yeah, as I see him really looking down the road for uh, the gubernatorial race on 20, uh, what would it be, 2026? Yeah. I agree with that for the reason that, that, you know, he has been focused on governor. I also don't think he can come out of the primary. I mean, <laughs> he sends a kid to Genesee Christian School, um, which no no offense to Genesee Christian School, it was started in my parents' living room and the house I my the paid off house I was living in was put up as collateral for to get their operating funds going. So but that's not gonna fly. The progressives' heads would blow up if uh, Chris Swanson were that, that's also his problem for governor. But at least if he runs for governor, he doesn't have to give up his sheriff job, which I think is a really, really good job. It's a better job than being a congressman, frankly. As far as McDonald Rivet doing better than the base, everybody who runs against somebody named Glenn has always done better than the base. Republicans didn't have to spend money on the Midland seat until Gary Glenn was the nominee. And for, the, for 10 years, they had to spend money on the Midland seat because it was Gary or Annette. It took me a second to remember her name. So that's a little overdone. Also, she ran as a moderate. And like everybody else in the legislature the last two years, her voting record is now indistinguishable from pretty much any member of the Ann Arbor City Council. So she's uh, theoretically a moderate. She says moderate within uh, 20 seconds of meeting her, but nobody in the legislature has escaped with a moderate voting record out of this term on either side, really. So, Dave, then who is your top three Republicans? So those are the top three Democrats. What about top three Republicans? Who are yours? I would say the top three are, uh, well, Ken Horn would be perfect, but he doesn't want it. Ken Horn is perfectly situated yeah. to have taken that. He's, he owns Western Genesee County even still. So the top three now, I would say Tom Leonard, Paul Young, and maybe somebody named Shooty. Okay. Don't ask me which one. Somebody named Bill Shooty. I'll narrow it down for you. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask the question about legislators possibly considering the seat because right now there is a bit of lancing chaos of what's going to happen in the state house now that they're split. Do you think anyone is actually going just looking at how tight these democratic majorities are in the state senate and state house would anyone actually risk affecting that further to pursue this congressional seat? Well, I'll bet Gretchen Winnie were burning up Karen, Karen uh Kristen McDonald's uh, phone lines asking her not to do this. Huh. Yeah. 
Well, because unlike Cherry, I mean, if Cherry were to run and win, that seat would be reliably Democratic, right. whereas that Bay City seat, that's another coin flip election then that you'd have to run up there to keep well, majority in, fact, in the better, Senate. The Republicans probably have a better choice of candidates for that seat than, than the Democrats do. What do you think, Tim? Well, I just, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's a free ride for, if you're talking about a senator, um, you know, they're in the middle of their term. I used to work for John Stad back in the 80s and 90s, and uh, he ran for Congress in 92, and it was a free I ride. I know I ran it. I know I ran Bursch's. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, but anyways, um, you know, and it was an uphill battle for us. Uh, I was involved in it. I was John's scheduling driver. Uh, but anyways, but it was a free ride. I mean, you lose, we lost. Uh, but it was a free ride. And it was a great experience for us who had only worked on the state level because we got to see 10 counties. We got to experience what it's like to actually work on a congressional campaign that I had never experienced. Um, and then, you know, and then 2002, I was John's driver and scheduler in the gubernatorial race. I got to see 83 counties. Whoever dreamed a kid from Burton, Michigan would get to drive the lieutenant governor to go see 83 counties. You know, and that one we won. What, what, okay. We didn't mention Jim Ananick. Uh, you mentioned him briefly, Tim. What do you think is going to happen there? If I was a bet man, which I am because I love playing Keno, is I would suspect Jim probably will not run. And I, I think so because what he's done is he's really poured his heart into the Greater Flint Health Coalition board. Um, he served as the chair of it for the last, I know, I think the last eight years or whatever he was as senator. I served on that board as well. Um, I think his comfort zone, he's got a small child. You know, you're giving up your life, even even for me, for being a state legislator. I never had a life. Being a staffer for 34 years, I never had a life. Um, you know, you just, you give up your whole life. And are you willing to do that when you got a small child? And I know his wife, I believe, is a teacher out in Flushing where Mr. Formeyer lives. Um, do you want to give that all up? I don't know. I bet that he probably will not. I agree. In fact, I think the the candidates on both sides that we've mentioned, except for, you know, I'll have to say what happens if I win, not right. what happens if I lose, except right. for maybe Swanson, because, you know, he's got to give up a seat. He's got to give something up to do it, uh, something really big up to do it. In fact, all three Democrat sheriffs and all three uh, Democrat sheriffs and this candidate would be good candidates in this race. But, you know, one one uh, endorsed a bunch of Republicans in the last cycle and the other one is completely non-political. So if you win this race, your next 10 years are, are basically always campaigning, always fighting to keep your seat. I mean, if you hand it to me, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't I wouldn't take it if you cleared the field on both sides for me. I wouldn't see my grandkids till they were. 15 years old, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a life you got to worry about. That's Tom Leonard's got young kids. Um, although he and both Tom's are, you know, you could have the two Tom uh, ticket there. Um, and they both got young kids and their best friends. So maybe they would think that would uh, lighten the load, but what happens if you win is a big consideration for, uh, whoever looks at it. That's in the front running thing. I mean, I would think Ananick is logical choice. I would have said if he wanted it, he would be the nominee. Uh, and he would get, I mean, he's not a guy who gets a lot of crossover votes, but he would get the, he would get the Democrat base. I don't think he would lose three people out of the Democrat base. I think before we wrap things up, I just kind of want to focus on issues outside of names. What would you say are kind of the top three issues that constituents in this district are zooming in on right now? I don't know if it's specific issues as much as it's going to be kind of cultural, you know, who... Who do people identify with? That's somebody who represents what I believe in general, I think is going to be more how this district breaks out. 
And it depends on the nominee. It really depends on the nominee. Who's going to get attacked for what they did before on what issue? Who, who does one side think the other side's weakness is? What do you think, Tim? Well, I disagree with that to a point because we just had elections, <clears throat> excuse me, here in Burton uh, that were pretty contested. And uh, what we saw was we saw kind of like what Mr. Formar was just saying, uh, you know, like about uh, like social issues. Uh, the candidates that had those social issues are the ones that basically lost. Uh, the mayor in Burton was reelected 60 to 40. Uh, because, you know, you had some people in there that uh, wanted to look at taking over local school boards, for example. I know we had that at uh, the school I went to and I taught at. I still live in that area is uh, Bentley. Uh, we had a couple that uh, ran last time for the school board that had much more conservative views and wanted to kind of change that makeup of it. And all both of those lost. And ironically, the guy that came in and won a seat on the board was the same guy that just won a seat on the Burton City Council. His name's Gary Wines, uh, which kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't even know who he was. And I've lived in Burton 50, 67 years now. It's just kind of a change. And I was really shocked at looking at those, um, those election results that came, especially out of Burton, was because I think the social issues didn't play into what I think some of those candidates that were running for that uh, the outcome was that uh, the, the mayor has a strong record on bringing the city together, doing good things to, uh, you know, in Burton. Uh, fixing roads was the main thing. I still agree that fixing, I served on transportation energy, the three terms I was on there. And the biggest thing I heard, and I still hear it, is um, our infrastructure. Uh, we still have a lot to go. You know, the governor can say all she wants about fix the damn roads. I still get complaints that we need to fix the damn roads. You know, seriously, because the roads, by the time you get up with one road, you got another road you got to fix. Uh, and we just see that in the little town of Burton. Um, so I think those issues are are very important. I think it, people are really focused on those more so than they are on the kind of the social issues. Oh, I didn't mean social issues, but I wouldn't want to run. I, I would hate to run in this district as somebody who voted to say, your township gets windmills, whether you like it or not. State government gets to do it. Oh, I agree with you. I said earlier, I've been yeah. a local a local <laughs> government control uh, the whole time. Yeah. And I did the bill too, and probably nobody knows it, but I had to work two terms on getting a bill as simple as having a mosquito millage or, uh, or a special uh, assessment. Um, I had to work on it because cities and counties could do it. And right. just to try to put it in there, it took me two terms to get that through the legislature. And all I was doing was allowing them to do it. Grand Blake's been doing it for years. And if anybody, we saw it in, um, I think it was, um, it was Gaines Township. Uh, they did a special assessment and uh, people sued the township and they actually won because it was never in the township act. So we were able to, you know, stuff like that. I've always been a local uh, government supporter. I never came out of local government, but I think that's the first place people go when they have a complaint about what's going on, whether it be state, whether it be federal, whatever. You're going to go see your mayor, your councilman, your township trustee, or your township supervisor. Uh, they generally don't drive over to Lansing to see me, even though I did 300 coffee hours in my six years. I did get a lot showing up, but a lot of them were uh, local issues. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you so much, Flushing-based political consultant David Forsmark and former state rep uh, Tim Sneller for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you.
us for the middle segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Don Crandall, the Executive Vice President of the Home Builders Association of Michigan. Uh, for those that have been keeping track of housing policy here in Lansing, Don's organization has definitely been in representation in the committee room. Don, I was a little bit curious if you could kind of tell us about the current day state of the quote unquote housing crisis within the state of Michigan. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks, Samantha, for having us on. This is such an important issue, not only to our members, but to individuals who might be looking to either find find their home or sell their home or rent a home. Um, you know, we truly are in a housing crisis. In 2005 was our last, what I would call, big build of single-family homes where there were a little over 54,000 single-family permits pulled in the state. And by 2000 seven, that number had dropped to roughly 15,000. And by 2009, that number dropped to about 6,900 single family permits. So you can see we've done, you know, a huge drop. And since 09, we've slowly been doing that. I think I can, I think I can creep up. And to just give you an idea of where we are today, um, year to date, based on September, there have been 10,684 single family permits pulled in this state. So we haven't even crested really like from that you know, little under uh, 7,000. Over that time frame, we've only just hit a little over 10,000. We've never peaked and valleyed. It's just been a slowly, you know, increase. So we truly are in the middle of a housing crisis. And where we see it the most is with that workforce housing um, kind of missing middle. And so, you know, the Home Builders and the Housing Michigan Coalition, which is an amazing coalition of voices with the Grand Rapids Chamber, the Michigan Municipal League, and Housing North, along with ourselves being part of that executive committee, we really are trying to show legislators that it's not just a builder issue, that it touches all, you know, the entire ecosystem of Michigan, where if we can't build it, Businesses can't hire talent to live where they, you know, where they work. Communities lose out on some of that funding base. And so it truly is kind of a, a housing crisis that every day we we talk about. What are some policies that made it over the finish line this year, this, you know, 2023 year in the legislature that you are particularly proud of and view as solutions to the housing crisis? Yeah, well, there is no one silver bullet. If there was, I would be spending Thanksgiving on a beach somewhere. But we worked with Senator Sam Singh on having residential construction recognized in TIF recapture funding. Uh, and that's any house up being sold up to the workforce housing of 120% area median income um, would be able to qualify for TIF. It would have to have local municipal approval as well as MISHTA approval. Uh, so we're very happy to see that the Housing Michigan Coalition worked with Senator Singh um, on that package. And then last year, just kind of the continuation, the governor signed four bills, bipartisan package, which we were extremely happy on. Senator Horn at the time and Senator Schmidt at the time each had a bill. Senator Moss and Senator Brinks at the time also each had a bill. And the governor signed those on December 13th. So almost a year ago, we saw three bills receive immediate effect. Jeremy Moss's bill, which extended neighborhood enterprise zones, took place, I believe, June of this year. Um, but we're already seeing projects be approved from some of those legislative pieces now law. 
So, you know, as we continue to work in a bipartisan fashion, I always say housing should not be a partisan issue. Everybody needs to live in a house. Last time I checked, when you went to apply for a mortgage, they didn't ask you your political affiliation. Um, and so we want to continue to work in a bipartisan fashion, but definitely Senate Bill 129 Last session, we were also fortunate, or this year, fortunate to get in the budget funding for municipalities to apply for grants if they would like to redo some of their local zoning ordinances to be more housing friendly and housing ready. Uh, those can start being applied for in the near future. I know the board of Mishta is just getting ready to apply or approve that language. Uh, so those are a couple of the issues that we're, we're very excited to see get over the finish line. There's still a lot of work to be done, though. It seems that housing is often utilized is this kumbaya term that both Republicans and Democrats alike care about housing investment in their policies. Now, my question for you, though, is what has been the difference between housing legislation in a Democratic-led legislature in comparison to in a Republican-led legislature? What, what are kind of the different angles and maneuvers that the individual parties have utilized? I think that's a great question. You know, on, on the Democrat side, some of those incentives are perceived of taking away school funding, which then impacts maybe a little bit how Democrats look at those issues. On the Republican side, they um, are not necessarily an incentive-based caucus. They think the free market will kind of fix it itself. And we've been in this, I mean, just based on the numbers I gave at the beginning of this segment, you know, the market hasn't fixed itself and builders can't build uh, based on materials and labor. I mean, we're really at that trifecta in our industry where um, you look at uh, the median new home price in our state is $375,000, um, a little over, which means the income needed to qualify is almost $120,000 to qualify for a new home. You know, when you look at you look at that, you look at regulatory costs per no, new home. Our National Association did a study. This is national, not just in Michigan. But when you look at the total effect of building codes, land use, environmental and other rules, uh, regulatory costs before you even begin the house rack up at about $94,000. That, that's a lot of money into the price of a home. And then when you look at the average age of a builder in the state of Michigan is 57. Uh, we got a lot of things coming at us that that need to be fixed. So while we look at the incentive sides and how both parties look at it, you know, it's more than just incentives. We're going to have to look at how do we get that next generation, you know, into the trades? How do we look at some zoning reforms um, and regulatory reforms and codes as they start coming down that are going to impact us? Do you think the SOAR fund, which is Michigan's corporate investment pot that's currently being reviewed for some revamping right now in the state legislature, do you think it missed an opportunity by not including housing more in the conversation of economic development? You know, we're actually excited that housing is being considered economic development when you look at that SOAR revamping. I believe up to 20% of um, the monies that go towards a project can be used to fill that uh, need in that community and housing and infrastructure can be part of that where before we've never seen that even part of the conversation. So, you know, we look at if that as a great first step that legislators are seeing that housing is part of economic development, that the governor's administration is looking at it, that MEDC and MISHTA all recognize that you can't have economic development without housing. 
you know, we look, we look at all these, you know, the governor wants Michigan to be an economic destination. You look at the average age of a home in our state, it it's old, right? It's probably 50 years plus. Um, if we're going to attract either new talent or that new population base, we need to have the housing available and attainable that people can, can bring their workforce here and have homes available for them. So that can't be a conversation that takes place once the ink is dry on an economic development uh, recruit because it takes at least two years if you're going to start a new subdivision uh, from start to finish. You can't wait until the ink is dry on the deal. We've got to be part of that conversation early. And we're extremely excited to see in that SOAR revamping that housing is being considered as part of the economic development piece of that puzzle. Is there a state you think holds a gold standard when it comes to housing policy? I'm sure there is, but I have not had time to speak with my counterparts around the state to see what they're doing. I know there are other states that have similar challenges to ours in terms of what I would call not housing friendly popular policy. Uh, but I haven't had the conversation of, you know, what's really working in, in making your housing situation a lot easier. I guess. I personally like to refrain from utilizing the word crisis, but why do you feel so comfortable in the fact that this is something that we've never seen be before in terms of housing in Michigan? Well, I think when we look at it, we look at the workforce aspect of it. We look at who can actually attain a home as we look forward to, you know, that first time home buyer. What does that look like? I think there are a lot of issues that are playing into that term of crisis right now. You have uh, we have an aging population that is staying in their homes longer, um, which is a whole other can of worms. If we wanted to get into senior housing availability in the state, that could be a segment on its own. Uh, so as you have people staying in their homes longer because they aren't downsizing, part of it is you look at the interest rates right now during COVID interest rates were extremely low. So people refinance their home at, you know, a two or three percent. Uh, I hate to say that they're trapped in their home. I don't want to call it trap, but if they move, they're going to most likely end up in a higher mortgage rate. So as you look at that piece of the puzzle as well, that's kind of impacting people moving or downsizing. Um, so you're not freeing up that step up home for somebody who's looking to move up into their kind of next level. So we are really comfortable with that word crisis because the supply is limited and the demand is still really high. And so when you look at who can play in that kind of cash market, mortgage market. If people are coming in with over, over asking value, it kind of bumps everybody down into that lower tier, which then creates that lack of workforce housing. And because those individuals get bumped even further down the, the housing chain. Is there anything that was left behind when the legislature decided to adjourn for the year that you wish wasn't? Well, that's a good question. There is a piece of legislation currently sitting in the state house that was up on the board a couple of times, Senate Bill 293. Uh, for the first time, MISHTA was funded with, I believe, $50 million for missing middle housing. MISHTA would like some flexibility on to um, use that funding to really target the need in the state of Michigan where the housing need is. Currently with that money, they can only use it up to 60% of area median income in downtown communities. 
Uh, Senate Bill 293 would have allowed MISHTA the flexibility to look at projects up to 120% in any of their kind of portfolio that they that they have available for, for building purposes. And that bill fell a couple of votes short in the House. And so we're hoping that when they come back in January, that will be one of the first bills up. The Housing Michigan Coalition, although the bills aren't introduced yet, um, we are working on a package of reform for local zoning. And we hope that we can have those in a spot where when they come back in January, we can get them introduced and move through the process. Because as I'm sure you you're, are well aware, Samantha, next year we run into an election year. Uh, and so it becomes an even crazier season than it is uh, that we saw this year. Now, your organization also entered a Don't Touch My Rates Coalition. What exactly is this coalition and what does it refer to? Don't touch my rights. So that's what we refer to as the bad faith uh, legislation, where it would increase a person's homeowner's uh, insurance policy. Uh, we saw it in Cal or in Florida, where policy rates went over forty two hundred dollars. Uh, it became an issue. They repealed it in Florida. Um, we're hoping that it doesn't see the light of day here. You know, we really look at all pieces of legislation as they get introduced, really through that housing attainability lens. And with the market being as tight as it is, if something is going to increase the cost of housing, even something that you may not think impacts us in terms of homeowners insurance, right? If you can't afford homeowners insurance, you can't have a house in Michigan. And so that's one of those issues where, you know, it just becomes another increase in somebody's or another barrier in somebody's being able to get into their home. And so anything that's going to have a negative impact on housing, we we tend to take an opposition to. Don Crandall, do you have any additional comments before we conclude this segment of the MERS Monday podcast? No, I hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving and gets a little break until the legislature comes back in January and that we're all ready to go. I do have a last question, though, now yes. that I think about it. Was there any policies that were approved this year that you think are going to negatively impact housing access? Um, again, we look at it from, you know, the lens of housing, uh, Senate Bill 14, which was introduced and actually signed into law, uh, would allow Michigan to have stricter than uh, federal guidelines. Uh, we don't feel that that would be helpful to builders. As, you know, I mentioned the regulatory costs, you know, across the country, we haven't had a, a breakdown of what it is in Michigan. But when you look at that, you know, $94,000, as you start to put stricter regulations on, you know, housing and, you know, the process that just makes it more unattainable for people. So that would be one, you know, I really try and focus on the good Samantha because there's so much controversy downtown. Uh, I like to celebrate our victories where I can, but that would be one that if um, local municipalities or the state wanted to go stricter than federal guidelines on something that impacts residential construction could have a, a huge impact on us. Don Crandall, the Home Builders Association of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Samantha. for our final segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Representative Phil Skaggs, the first year legislator 
and East Grand Rapids Democrat. Before coming to the legislature, Rep. Skaggs served on the Kent County Commission from 2017 through 2022 and was an elected East Grand Rapids City Commissioner before that. We are joined by Rep. Skaggs today to discuss one of our favorite topics on the MERS Monday podcast, transparency. As the representative was one of 11 Democrats in the House to vote against Senate Bill 613, one of the main bills subjecting legislators and statewide elected executives to financial disclosure filing requirements, which was needed to be created because of the the passage a proposal one of 2022 rep skaggs we were honestly hoping you could speak candidly about the subject and did this spoil any well water for democrats and lansing right now what will relationships look like when the gang gets back together next year oh thank you so much for for inviting me it's great to be here i think that uh these things normally tend to uh to blow over Uh, You know, look, we had a a policy disagreement. It wasn't a a personal or political disagreement. It's certainly true that these disagreements, which uh, were behind the scenes for a long period of time, did come out in the open there at the end. Um, I think it was unfortunate and something that that no one really wanted. But in the end, uh, I feel like it was extraordinarily important to try to get the implementation of Proposal 1 done right. This is something that passed by uh, a popular vote of 67% of voters. This was not something that legislators were doing out of the goodness of our hearts. This was something that was required and demanded uh, by the vast majority of Michigan voters. And so I felt like in this instance, it was extremely important uh, and vital to do everything possible, including some introducing competitive bills and introducing uh, amendments to to democratic bills which uh, would have made the the bills i think much stronger so what will happen uh you know what will be will be but uh, i continue to be on uh on team michigan and and team uh democratic party and democratic caucus and i'll look forward to uh, seeing my colleagues over this uh, in district work period and then when we get back to lansing Now, one of Senator Singh's successful amendments to this legislation was allowing financial disclosure filers to share more than what is required of them. Uh, Will you be taking advantage of that when it's your time to file later next spring? Yes, I sure will. I mean, there's an option to do most anything. So putting it into uh, into legislation maybe doesn't really uh, affect anyone who who needs to be impacted by uh, requirements for financial disclosure. But I have uh, been following my uh, mentor on this issue and former employer representative David LeGrant and have been uh, disclosing my own personal finances on my website for some time. And I will certainly continue to do so. How much more are you going to share, though? So what should we be looking out for in your filing? Well, I will certainly be doing the things that uh, that I encouraged changes to to SB 613 and, and the bills, which, you know, I think were, uh, you know, there's many words that I've heard used for them. They're the workaround bills, the loophole bills, the uh, uh, the watered down bills, the the minimum bills. I'll be going further than that towards the amendments that we introduced uh, on the floor. So I'll be doing a full spousal disclosure, a full dependent disclosure. Uh, I'll be disclosing any gifts that I get uh, above $500 from non-lobbyists. And in a sense, just trying to 
uh, close the loopholes that were in those bills, uh, of which I think the most egregious were those two that I mentioned, the spousal loophole. Michigan is a joint asset state, which means that when you are married, half of all of your assets belong to your spouse, whether they're in your name or in their name. So what happened with these bills is by not including a, a robust spousal reporting requirements like 43 of the 48 states have, we simply allowed a kind of shell game where legislators or candidates will be able to move financial assets, move business assets over into their spouse's name and then hide them from the public. So I thought that that was one of the most egregious problems with with those bills uh, that passed. Um, And so I'll be disclosing without a spousal loophole. Same thing as I mentioned for the gift loophole. Unfortunately, the way the bills are written, every legislator and candidate will report that they receive zero gifts from lobbyists because it's written in such a way that it's only reportable, tangible gifts from lobbyists. So everyone doesn't have to report the meals or drinks that we get below $72, and we're not allowed to take tangible gifts above $72. So when the voters looked at the proposal and voted on it, it said that we have to disclose gifts. We will, in a sense, be disclosing no gifts because of the definitions that were put into that bill. And when I disclose, uh, take, take advantage of the option, which I had before, to disclose further I'll be disclosing any gifts that I get from whether it be C4s or nonprofits or corporations. I'm certainly happy to to tell you now that my full disclosure is zero. Um, I have not gotten any trips to Aruba or Spain or anywhere else. I'm just uh, here at home working away for District 80. Representative Skaggs, uh, you, like you said, you did put out an alternative bill package. Did you get any blowback from leadership for um, not supporting what they put out and for putting out something that was a little tougher? I mean, leadership has made it clear that that all representatives are allowed to put forward the bills that they want to that they want to put out. And obviously, we saw what happened to those bills. Um, so I think that sort of speaks for themselves that those bills were immediately put on second reading and and were not sent to the ethics committee, which I think was, you know, I would have preferred. And then, you know, there were no votes on the amendments to to close those loopholes and improve the bills through other measures as well, including expanding the offices that would be required to do personal financial disclosure to the State Board of Education and the university boards. Um, as well as improving the fine system. Although some of the things that we did want to see uh, improved in the Senate bills were improved. But no, I, I have not. The, the speaker was the speaker was, you know, determined, I think, to move forward with with the Senate bills. The Senate bills, were they the product of this work group that you were involved in with Representative Burns and Senator Moss and Representative Stone and uh, Senator Singh. Yeah, the the five of us had been working in a legislative work group since the spring, and really both sets of bills, both the the, the Senate bills that that did pass both chambers, and then the bills that uh, Representative Burns and I and others introduced, both came out of those work group sessions. So simply, the final recommendation that we made was essentially the bills that the the Burns-Skaggs proposals 
uh, the group of 22 bills, there were 22 co-sponsors uh, introduced. And then, you know, the Senate bills deleted some of the sections from, from the work group product. When you were in those work group meetings, did you get a sense from the governor's office that she did not want to have spousal, full spousal reporting and full dependent reporting in those bills? I mean, I think you'd have to ask the governor and her team. I, I don't really want to disclose those negotiations. It'll make it a lot harder for me to have negotiations in the future. Um, but I think, you know, what is on the public record is on the public record from the governor. So it's not not hard to uh, to interpret the way that some of those negotiations went. But I'll leave that up to you guys. I want to change subjects here because you are also one of the legislators that was pretty vocal about the University of Michigan suspension of a football coach dealing with a sign stealing scheme. Now, I can't help but admit that when the Twitter frenzy initially erupted, I believe earlier this month, I did see a lot of people ask, why are lawmakers talking about this? Why are they getting involved? Can you tell us a little bit more about why you opted to become vocal about this subject? Oh, I don't think it's particularly hard to understand why legislators would be involved. I mean, I think it's twofold. One, um, we are lawmakers. And one of the core principles of of the American experiment uh, is that uh, people are entitled to, to due process. Now, certainly that's due process from government. Um, but I felt that it was important to also argue that the associations that you or that a, that a public institution belongs to um, should also make sure that they are above reproach, uh, are unbiased and are following clear precedent and and their own internal rules. So that's the only thing that we asked for. You know, there were no comments about whether a a violation occurred or not. That'll be up to the NCAA investigation, which I think is the is the proper forum for that. But I'm on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, I'm on the Higher Ed Subcommittee for Appropriations. I'm a former professor myself. I'm a strong defender of all of our public institutions, but especially uh, higher education institutions. And you know, again, uh, by way of full disclosure, I think it's pretty well known that uh, I'm a proud alumnus of the University of Michigan. Uh, and a season ticket holder and a fan. But I do believe that what this group was trying to to argue was that the Big Ten ought to go through a due process investigation or or punishment system and uh, simply do the right thing. And and so I think that's 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 the sort of work that people want to see from us, uh, that we're defending public institutions. Do you think Coach Harbaugh got the shaft from the Big Ten with his three-game suspension? <laughs> yes, I, I, I do. I think that, in general, the punishment should fit the crime. Um, but we don't know that a crime was committed here um, because we don't have the reports from the NCAA investigation. And if Coach Harbaugh or someone in the in the football program was caught jaywalking, and I do think that uh, I mean, I see this as referred to as sign stealing. I think it's important that what happened was in a public space where tickets are sold, someone put up posters with pictures on them. And then someone went in, just as happens during a game, and tried to decode those coded poster signs. So do I think that decoding signs 
uh, ought to lead to the suspension of a head football coach. No, I think this is in NCAA terms, a level three or a level two violation that is somewhere in the misdemeanor scale and some level of probation or fines would be a much more appropriate punishment should the NCAA investigation deem that to, to have been a, a true violation of NCAA rules. Are we going to get some bills from this? Some Harbaugh bills? No, I think we've I think we have made our point that we will defend public as institutions, and we wanted to let uh, the University of Michigan know that that there were legislators there that were that had their back and uh, believed, as they as President Ono did, uh, that the University of Michigan deserved due process. Now you are also the sponsor, correct, on the changing the Michigan flag contest legislation, right? Uh, that bill has not been introduced yet. Uh, there are certainly some other bills that got in the way. Uh, but yes, I am an advocate of having a strong consideration to change Michigan's flag from what uh, vexillologists, and those are people that study flags, uh, refer to uh, the Michigan flag as an SOB, a seal on a bedsheet. Uh, so it's a relatively boring flag. We do not see national flags uh, that look like that. The, the American flag is based on uh, certain uh, aspects of our country and harken back to some uh, earlier revolutionary history of our country, uh, even before Betsy Ross. And so it has real symbolism. It, it, the American flag is not a blue background with the seal of the United States of America put on it. And I think that it's important for people, again, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a former professor, a history professor, I understand that it's it's key to people to have symbols of which they rally around. And we can see this uh, every day that we have session uh, on the House of Representatives uh, and in and many sporting events uh, and, and other places in our public life. We begin uh, by a pledge of allegiance to the flag uh, and the republic for which it stands. So flags are clearly an important symbol. Uh, I've got uh, I've got a flag flying out of my house uh, outside my house right now, uh, as do many of my neighbors. And I think that Michigan simply deserves a flag that evokes the things that we are most proud about our state. How far have you gotten with that particular concept? I mean, do you see that as as something that's actually doable or are we just kind of kicking the subject around right now? I think we're kicking the subject around right now, and it is doable. Um, Utah uh, went ahead and just recently changed its flag. They did so largely to get away from the seal on a bedsheet flag to something that had uh, mountains and red rocks and, uh, and was really uh, evocative of the way that Utahans, I think it's Utahans, about how they feel about themselves, which is that they're hardworking, so there's a beehive on there because they're busy as, bee, as bees. So I think that other states have done this. Minnesota is in the process. Massachusetts is in the process. Illinois is in the process. So a lot of states are understanding that people think that design and symbols and flags are important and that we ought to have a flag in this state that is something that we can rally around. You'll see people in Michigan want to rally around things all the time. You see that in our bumper stickers, You know, people who have mittens, people that have uh, the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula with the word native across of it. They have uh, block M's or they have Spartan S's. We are looking for a way to show our pride. Uh, and other states have their flags. Other cities have their flags like Chicago or Washington, D.C. 
And I think Michigan ought to have that too. All right. One other bill I want to ask about uh, your bill to expand the court of appeals. It's been, it's been described by uh, minority leader hall as the court packing bill. Does this pack the courts to give governor Whitmer some more appointees on that appellate court bench? Look, every, uh, every 10 years, if you go back in history, the legislature has, has redistricted the court of appeals. The last legislature after the census, as it did with many things, uh, did not accomplish that task. So now that we have a new census, it's time for some new lines. I think if you take a real analysis of those lines, you will not see it as particularly partisan. I think what it is doing is undoing the gerrymandering of of the last redistricting effort for the Court of Appeals, and I think is is a very fair process, and I look forward to those bills getting hearing in. No, oh, that's uh, not court packing. You're you're saying that's not court packing? No, it's not court packing. I do want to trouble you with a personal question, because obviously there have been some headlines about your wife being a multi-client lobbyist and her taking on a solar client while the Democrats were working on the clean energy by 2040 legislation with you yourself being a solar policy bill sponsor. How do you personally ensure that there's transparency in your own relationship? And how do you kind of navigate those windows where there could potentially be a conflict of interest? Well, like I said, I am extraordinarily proud of my wife, Kate Skaggs. She's a wonderful advocate for her clients. And I have nothing but the belief in her hard work, diligence, and her ethics. And we both have thought about this long and hard uh, as I ran for office and and was elected to office. Uh, We have a pretty strong firewall between her lobbying efforts and my legislative efforts. Uh, So for example, when, when the article was written about the solar bills that I put forward, this has been a, a great example of the fact that we have a perfect firewall. I had no idea that she had a solar client. I learned about it from the media itself because she does not run down a list of her clients with me. So the way I look at the the broadly at the ethics of it all is, is I think, twofold. Number one, uh, I have the most financial disclosure of any legislator in Michigan because it's fairly easy to go to the lobbyist website, type in SCAGs, and see all of the clients of, of my wife's firm. Um, so we have, uh, we have pretty strong disclosure. And then secondly, I just take a look at uh, when I am aware of her clients, um, I certainly take a look at my own beliefs. I mean, I, I do the same thing I do on any bill. What are my principles and where do I think the people of House District 80 are at? And I have not run into a circumstances where my principles and the beliefs of my voters are in any kind of contradiction with, uh, with my wife's clients. So just to keep in mind a couple of other things, a lobbyist cannot be paid more for or even hired in order to gain a specific result. And so, you know, my wife is not violating the Lobby Act uh, and neither am I. I think my voters are are aware of my long history of public service and I think are confident that I will continue to do what is in their best interests. We are near the end of today's segment and there's obviously a lot to expect out of next year, but I think I do want to ask just one more question now that we're talking about your relationship with your wife. Do you think there will ever come a time maybe next year where you will decide not to vote on something on the floor because it's in, it involves one of your wife's clients? 
mean, we'll take things on a, a I mean, I don't know that I want to answer a hypothetical. We'll take things on a on a one-on-one basis. But again, I think it's very clear the lobbying acts like lobbyists are not paid um, with a win bonus. Uh, lobbyists are not paid based on tips or on commission. And so I will continue to ask the questions that I've always asked. Is this in the best interest of the people of the state of Michigan and the people of House District 80? And, you know, about recusing myself, we'll see when that happens. I think we're seeing some some theatrical recusals from the other side of the aisle. But I think the point of the the rules that the House abides by is essentially, do you think that your vote or that your appropriation is influenced by some perceived conflict of interest or not. And I haven't come across that yet. Rep. Bill Skaggs, thank you so much for joining today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to Flushing-based political consultant David Forsmark, the president of Winning Strategies and former state rep Tim Sneller, a Burton Democrat, Additionally, thanks to Executive Vice President Don Crandall of the Home Builders Association of Michigan and State Rep Phil Skaggs, an East Grand Rapids Democrat. I'd like to give a tremendous thanks to MERS editor Kyle Mullen as well. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos. Thanks to him for putting this and all of our other audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Shriver. Crazy.